0: book of Hebrews tells us who Jesus is. Now part of the problem we have in even reading the scriptures is that many of you have read the scriptures so many times, you've basically said, why should I read it anymore? Because I know what they say. And that's true. I've also faced that. And when I come to that place, It forces me to begin to really take a careful look at what I think I know because usually what I think I know is what gets me in trouble. The scriptures are like a deep mind. You've got to dive in and dig. You've got to go back and look at Strong's Concordance and begin to examine some of the Greek words. You say, Well, I don't know Greek, Pastor. You can certainly use Strong's Concordance. You can take a look very carefully at some of the different translations. We're going to go in new territory today. Some of you have never heard what I'm going to share with you because it's always been taught differently, but it's not been taught in a way that is justified by the actual Greek and Hebrew words. So I want to open some vistas for you today. These have been opening for me over the past weeks, and I am very excited about what God is showing me and the implications for what he's showing me. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we're immediately introduced to who Jesus is. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we're invited to enter into his rest, into intimacy with him the word rest in the in the hebrew and in the greek means more than just cessation more than just stopping doing what you're doing it's literally entering into the place of repose that's the actual meaning of the greek word to to rest it's to lay down it's a place of repose it's god's bedroom And he invites us to come into his place of repose, into intimacy with him. You know, you've heard this many times, I'm sure. The word to know is the same word in the Greek that is used for intercourse between a husband and a wife. The most intimate form of communication between a husband and wife. This is the word that is used to know God, to come into utter, total intimacy with him. That's what he desires with us. That's the hunger of our hearts. Then he speaks about, look, we need to move on from the basic teaching that I've been doing. We need to go much deeper. We need to to eat the real meat. And what is the real meat? Hebrews tells us that that is righteousness. To be made righteous, to be made like Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then we come to this 11th chapter. Now to understand the 11th chapter... You have to understand chapter 10 is the warning chapter. Don't continue to deliberately sin because if you do, there will be no sacrifice for sin left for you. So don't, don't deliberately continue to walk in wickedness before God because the power of the blood of Jesus has been granted. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, he has entered into the heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly sanctuary with the blood of bulls and goats. He has entered into the heavenly sanctuary. He has entered into that Melchizedek priesthood forever. And so we come to the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and now he begins to flesh out for us What God is actually now looking for in your life and in mine in relationship to the direction God is moving in in every age and in every culture. In other words, throughout history, throughout the ages, these divided portions of time, through these divided ages, God has had an agenda. He has been moving forward in a very specific, linear way. Finally climaxing in what Bunyan calls crossing the Jordan and entering into the celestial city. We refer to it in different ways as finally entering heaven, entering the promised land. We look eagerly for the coming of Jesus. Now, while we're in this process, God is moving in our culture. And Hebrews, the 11th chapter, is going to tell us how God moved in every age. Let's begin in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things being expected, an inner conviction of things not being seen. But let's break that down. As I shared last Wednesday, faith in what? You see, faith must have at its base a rhema word from God. Well, what is a rhema word from God? Well, the Greek word rhema literally means a revelation of divine will that requires cooperation, courage, sacrifice. It's a call to a task, a duty, a mission to be carried out. A, a, a Rhema word is a call of God to put something in harmony with His will or His purpose on the earth. Thus, it sets man against the age in which he lives. This is the essential essence of spiritual conflict. Bringing a Rhema word of God into fulfillment. It is an obedience to the command of God. Now, all of Scripture is God-breathed. But the Lord will speak specifically to a man or woman through the Scriptures or by the Spirit, giving direction. And I know I've heard modern-day preachers say, No, God only spoke through Jesus, and he doesn't speak anymore. But the scriptures say, his sheep know his voice. How do they know his voice if he doesn't speak today? And then I've heard some of these men who say God doesn't speak today, when asked, how did you know to accept that invitation to that church? And they'll say, oh, I just, I had an inner leading, I had an inner feeling. Well, is that not the Holy Spirit speaking and giving you that inner leading? He speaks in many different ways to us today. But he does speak. Now, this rhema word must be for us the basis of faith. Again, in review, the word for faith in the Greek is pistis, and it simply means to be absolutely, totally convinced. Well, convinced of what? Convinced of the rhema word that's been spoken to you. And Hebrews one has not ever made sense to me before the last weeks as I have finally begun to understand that faith does not stand on its own. Faith has no power of itself. Faith is merely the lifeless hands of a man who reaches out and grasps the promises of God based on the Rama word that's been spoken to them. Now, there are people who say that God created the earth with his faith. No, he didn't. He created the earth by his power, and that power is his alone. I am not a little God. I am a creature, I am a created being in the image of God. But I am to be utterly dependent upon the Lord God of heaven. So it says, now faith is the assurance. Well, what does the word assurance mean? It means to stay under. That's the actual Greek word, to remain under. To remain under what? The rhema word God has spoken to you. God has spoken promises to me regarding the future and what he's going to do at the National Prayer Chapel. I stand by faith that those promises are being worked out even as I'm speaking with you now. But that faith is not standing on its own. It's standing on the rhema word that God has spoken to me since I was a child. And so if I simply say this man needs to be healed, I'm going to pray the prayer of faith over him and he's going to be healed. No, he's not. No, he's not. I'm going to have to pray over that man the prayer of faith based on the rhema word of God that he's quickened in my heart and assured me and told me, pray for that man and I'll heal him. Now it's interesting that even Jesus could not heal many in Nazareth. Jesus did not come exercising his power and doing his will. He had to have the rhema word of the Holy Spirit He only preached, he only taught, he only did what the Father in Heaven said. So he based his whole ministry on the rhema word of God that was breathed into him. So, now faith is remaining under the rhema word that I have heard. Of the things being expected why are they expected? Because God has spoken them. And there is a deep inner conviction. I can't see it, but there's a deep inner conviction that says, this is what God wants because this is what God said. Now, you can take a promise like Mark eleven twenty two through 24, and you can pray it as I have, and it's not quickened to me. There's no power in it. It's dead. But as I remained and continued praying that prayer and and searching after God. He finally began to come into my spirit and deal with the issues in my heart that he needed to deal with. And then finally he said, "Okay, now this promise is yours. I'm giving it to you now stand that I'm going to do what I've promised I would do. And when that happened, it's what the old timers called having prayed through. It means that the Rhema word of God has been uttered, and I now know beyond question that what I've asked for will be done because my faith is standing on the Rhema word of God that He's spoken to my heart. Now let's continue. For by this, the men of old were confirmed. Literally in the Greek, the old men now testify. In other words, the older men who have experienced the rhema word of God over and over, who have experienced the power of God coming and accomplishing what he promised, now testify that God does this. They witness that God has done this. They confirm the word of God that he is faithful to do what he said he would do now we come to verse 3 we understand the ages and by the way let me read this first i'm going to go quickly in my bible to the book of i'm 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 using several bibles today let me go quickly to hebrews The 14th, the 11th chapter in the NIV. This is what it says By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It's a completely false translation. Let me tell you why. By faith, We understand that the universe, the problem is the Greek word used here is not for universe. The Greek word is aeons, or we would say in the English, eons. In other words, portions of time measured out, ages. So literally it should read by faith, you understand every time it says by faith, it's saying by faith based on the Word of God, based on the Rama Word, the breathed Word of God. By faith, we understand that the ages were formed, but the Word in the in the Greek is not the word for formed. Literally, in the Greek, it's we understand the ages to have been put right or adjusted by faith in a Rhema from God. Now, why would they mistranslate this? Because they could not imagine. I I read one of my favorite Commentaries. Uh, Clark. And he says the author could not possibly mean ages. He had to mean universe. Why? Let's take the scripture at face value. It says, we understand that the eons or aeons in the Greek were adjusted or were put right from God's command. The word command is literally from God's rhema. So it should read, we understand the ages to have been put right by faith in a rhema from God adjusted by faith and a rhema from God so that the things being seen have not happened out of things being visible now this text it's not surprising it's been mistranslated it is the key to understanding all of the rest of the 11th chapter of Hebrews let me explain In every age, God is moving, but so is the devil. And in our day, darkness is coming upon America. America is crashing morally, financially, culturally. America is going down the tube. It is burning. It It is being destroyed, deliberately destroyed by globalism. Now, in this age, God wants men and women who can hear his rhema word for this age and who are willing by faith in that rhema word to act in a way that adjusts our culture, that puts right our culture. So you, my brother, my sister are called to hear the word of God for this age and then to act on that word in such a way in your family, where you work, wherever you go, the way you speak, the way you act, that you are putting right this culture based on the rhema word of God to you. Have you heard a rhema word from God? Are you close enough to God? that you hear from him? Or are you simply a religionist that practices the form of religion with no power, a form of godliness with no power, as Paul said to Timothy? We need to hear what God is doing. We need to see what God is doing in this age. And we need to stand by faith under the rhema word of God to adjust and set right the culture in which we participate in so that things will happen because God moves them and makes them happen by faith in his power. We're not the ones who have the power. We're not the ones who are the actors We simply follow the directions of the Holy Spirit. We follow the directions that Jesus orders for us. We hear the rhema word, we respond. I do this radio broadcast day by day, regardless of whether it's effective or not. I do this broadcast because I heard God say, do the radio broadcast. I stand by faith that he will move in your hearts to donate to make it possible. I stand by faith that the word will go out and will produce an effect in your life and draw you to the cross of Jesus and cause you to be totally converted, to be transformed, to be changed into his image and that you will join together with me under the rhema word of God to adjust the culture to change what's happening in America. Have I given up on America? I haven't given up on America. God loves America. God has not washed his hands of America. America is going to be turned. The word of God is going to go out with power across this nation. He's not going to bring a judgment of destruction if they've not heard the warning of righteousness. In every city, in every place, the message of righteousness must be raised up. The gospel of Jesus that he has the power and his blood to set us free from sin must be proclaimed from city to city across this nation. Men and women need to have an opportunity to know who Jesus Christ truly is and not the watered down, polite, social Jesus, the cotton candy Jesus of our culture. I stand by faith under the Rama word that he's spoken to me to come on this radio and proclaim these things to you. Now I recognize that not everybody likes what I present on this broadcast. I get some nasty letters and calls and emails. It's okay. I don't take them personally. And I don't preach or teach for you to be approving of me. Many of you write and tell me what an incredible blessing this broadcast has been to you, and I'm very grateful for that testimony, and it's very encouraging to me. But I stand or fall based on whether or not I please Jesus. And so I come with an unvarnished gospel. I don't come with a worldly gospel. I'm not in accord with the worldly church. I'm not in accord with the worldly music I'm not in accord with much that happens in the wicked worldly church today. I'm in total opposition to it. I'm not in accord with ordaining homosexuals as bishops or pastors or or homosexual marriage. There's no such thing. Marriage was created by God, not, not by the state, not by the federal government, not by the Supreme Court. They have no jurisdiction. Marriage is something God created. It's something he owns. So, as I look at all of this, I have to come and proclaim what the Holy Spirit gives me in a rhema word out of His word. Now, as we begin step by step to go through each of these people in these ages, we're going to discover that their behavior adjusted the culture and made a difference. So the first person we have to deal with is, by faith, Abel, offered to God, and I want to look this up in the NIV. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. I'm going to break that down in the Greek, but just very quickly let me give you a scripture I meant to give you earlier and, and missed it. Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing the message, hearing the word of Christ, hearing the Rhema of Christ, and the word used is Christ or Messiah. It's not a sentimental word, it's it's coming from the Messiah. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, by hearing the word of Christ. So in every case, as we go through this, it's going to open by faith Abel offered. It's by faith in a rhema word of God. Faith only comes from a rhema word. If there's no rhema word, there's no faith. There's flesh faith. There's false faith. There's witchcraft Biblical faith is always based on a Rhema word of God. Otherwise it's not it's not real faith. It's it's witchcraft faith. It says by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, he still speaks even though he's dead. Well, the, the NIV is not a very good translation. And we need to go, frankly, we need to go through this verse word by word and understand what's actually being said. When it says, by faith, Abel offered to God, it's literally in the Greek, a more abundant sacrifice than Cain. Abel offered to God a more abundant, a larger, a more complete offering. Now, if you look with me in Genesis, the fourth chapter, it says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. In Leviticus, it tells us that this word, fruits of the soil, is literally fine flour that was offered as an offering under the Old Covenant. The word fruits of the soil literally means in the Hebrew, a part, a part. A part of the soil As an offering to the Lord. So Cain brought a part of the offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions or firstlings. Literally, again, it means a part, a section. And fat means the best and the richest of the firstborn of the flock. Now it does not say here what I have long understood that the struggle between Cain's offering and Abel's offering was that Abel brought a lamb, while Cain brought fruit or vegetables. And so we have often been taught that Abel brought an offering that represented Jesus, while Cain brought an offering from his own produce. That may be right. That that's not what the scriptures say. It's not what the Greek and Hebrew words are actually saying to us. As far as we can go in Genesis, the fourth chapter, is that both Cain and Abel brought apart from what they were raising. The difference was. Abel brought the very richest, the very best. Now, evidently, God had spoken a rhema word to both of these young men, instructing them on what they should bring before the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, according to Leviticus, what Cain brought later would represent the fine flour That was used in the peace offering and the thank offering before God. So the issue here is not that Cain brought his own produce and Abel brought a lamb. That's assumed, but it's a false assumption. It's not an assumption that is supported by the actual words that are used in the scripture. Instead, the word used in Hebrews the 11th chapter is that by faith, Abel offered God a more abundant sacrifice than Cain did. In other words, the real issue that the writer of the book of Hebrews is lifting up, and by the way, the Septuagint makes this very clear in Genesis And the Septuagint, even though a poor translation, was the translation used by Jesus. What's being spoken of here is a selfish offering versus an abundant offering. Now, when we come to God looking at these... God came and looked at these offerings in Genesis the fourth chapter. And the scriptures the word used is literally um, bewildered. God was bewildered at His selfishness. God was displeased. It was not an acceptable offering. Not because it wasn't a lamb. It was not acceptable because it was a chintzy gift. It was not a gift showing respect and in obedience to what the God of heaven had commanded they bring to him. Now, if you're going to bring an offering to God and you're going to lay it on the altar... What's going to happen to it? Well, it's going to be burned up. It's going to be consumed. Well, of what value is that? I mean, what if you brought your offering on Sunday to the church and the pastor put all of the offering, all the checks and money, he put it in a basket and lit it on fire and burned it? Would you give such a generous offering? In other words, the bringing of an offering to God is not about what's going to happen with that offering. I had one precious lady. She gave a very generous offering to the National Prayer Chapel for Pilgrim's Progress Radio. And then she wrote me a rather strident letter and said, you're not being accountable for the money that's being given. And I wrote back and I said, what are you talking about? Of course I'm accountable. Call WAVA and see if the bill got paid. Every penny goes to that, to that radio station, to the, to the cost of the radio. And you're giving to a church where there are leaders I'm the pastor. What are you asking for? And she never was willing to respond. You see, when we give to the Lord, we give to the Lord. And it's not our business what he does with that. If he chooses to consume it in the fire, he can choose to burn it up. All the offerings of the old covenant were offered on the altar and they were consumed with fire. Men and women would bring their offerings to the apostles and lay them at their feet and the apostles would then distribute them according to the needs of the people. You could not come and lay the offering at the apostles' feet and say, now this has to go to so-and-so. No, you came and gave your offering to Jesus. But what happened with Ananias and Sapphira? They said we're going to bring the entire amount of the property sale and we're going to lay it at your feet. Well, they came and they laid he laid the amount at the feet of Peter, and the Holy Spirit told Peter he has withheld, he has lied. And he died. Right then, right there, the Holy Spirit took his life. And then the wife came in, and he asked her, is this the amount you sold the property? Oh yes, that's the amount, that's the full amount. And she died. It seems that God is very concerned about whether or not we offer a gift acceptable and honestly to God. Or whether we're being chintzy with him. Whether we're lying to him. Whether we're pretending that we're giving something that we're not really giving. Now isn't it interesting that this right out the chute. This is the first person spoken about in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And the issue is not apportioning correctly the financial resources that belong to God. And I can tell you today, a minimum of ten percent belongs to God of everything that you earn. It's called a tithe. On a hundred dollars, it's ten dollars. on a thousand dollars. It's $100. Now you say, but pastor, that's not a New Testament teaching. Well, yes, it is. Malachi is addressing the New Testament church. Jesus said, you ought to have done this and not withheld from God. Well, the Holy Spirit speaks to us today and he tells us what he wants us to give. And he expects that that rhema word will be be held by us as sacred and that we will give what he prompts us to give at church, to the poor, wherever he tells us and however he tells us to give. This is the first issue of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. It's not whether you have a blood offering or an offering of of the garden, the fine flower. It's a question of the portion you appoint for yourself versus the portion you appoint for God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Abel offered God a more abundant offering, a more abundant sacrifice than Cain did. Now, because of that abundant offering that he gave, he was commended as a righteous man, or he was declared righteous. His offering was a testimony of his love for God. And when he apportioned the amount that he should give, he gave the portion, plus I'm sure some extra, of what God was asking him to give. And it was an accepted offering by God because he saw that his heart was totally given over to the Lord God of heaven. It was not a selfish gift. Abel, on the other, or Cain, on the other hand, gave a selfish gift, cut short. Not an abundant gift. I'm sure he said to himself, look, if I give this to God, he's just going to burn it up. I'd rather eat it. I'd rather have it for our family. We need it. And God looked with dismay on his offering. Bewildered that he would be so rebellious and so selfish when God had given everything he needed. It says, by faith, that is, based on a rhema word from God, Staying under that rhema word, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. He offered God a more abundant sacrifice than Cain did. And he was accepted. He was commended. When God spoke well of the offering. So by faith, Abel offered the offering that was abundant. But Cain did not. We're getting now right to the heart of the issue. And that is, is Jesus the very center of your life? And for the Christian today, under the new covenant, the abundant gift that God wants in Romans 12, the first verses, is that He wants us to offer ourselves entirely as a living sacrifice on the altar of burnt sacrifices. He wants us to give ourselves entirely Into the hand of God. So that our husbands or our wives or our children don't belong to us. We've given them to Jesus. Our money does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. Our houses belong to Jesus. Everything we possess when we're a true Christian in the new covenant. Everything we possess belongs to Jesus Christ. Romans 12, we are now with all that we possess a living sacrifice to be directed and used as Jesus sees fit. Now, God testified that the gift of Abel was accepted. And though he was killed by his brother and he died, his gift still speaks today and warns us, don't be selfish with God. Don't try to cheat God out of what is due him. Some of you have not done as Jesus has asked you and you have brought an offering to God like Cain did. You've said, I'm not going to give my whole life to Jesus. I will give him some time maybe on Saturday or Sunday. And then I'm going to go about my life and my business. And uh, the offering I may throw in a $10 $10 bill or a $20 bill, or I may even give an honest 10% of my income, but that's all I'm going to give. With sadness, I smile sometimes when I see the checks of people who give their tithe. And it'll be $168.24. And I say, What? You'll be exact with God? After all he's done for you? You'll be selfish with him? Come on. You cannot outgive God. You can give inappropriately, but you cannot outgive him. You simply are called to obey the Rama word that he speaks into your heart about giving to God. And when you give to him what he chooses to do with it or what his servants choose to do with it, that's not your concern and that's not your business. That's between them and God. And your giving is between you and God. And so even yet today, the generosity of Abel's gift speaks to us. It speaks to us, first of all, of the abundant gift of Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree. The incredible love that God poured out. He did not reserve anything in heaven for himself. He gave all that he had when he gave his son on Calvary's tree. And if you read carefully Ephesians, the first chapter, Paul details one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He details all of the wonderful gifts and heaven, it says, was emptied by God in pouring out the generous gifts for we who are human beings. everything we could possibly want or need in Jesus has been supplied by the blood he shed on Calvary's tree. The love of God has been utterly poured out for us. The provision of God has been poured out for us. That's what Abel's abundant gift foretold And now he's still speaking to you and to me and saying, Will you cause your gift given to Jesus to be equally abundant? Will you give him your life? Will you give him your children? Will you give him your wife, your husband? Will you give him your job? Will you give to him your health? Will you put everything on the altar of burnt offering for Jesus Christ? To be used as he chooses to use you or not to be used at all? My precious wife, Jan. I heard her pray many times, Lord. My life is a blank check. Spend it any way you choose. Oh, and he spent her on music He spent her in loving people. He spent her in drawing the lost to himself. He spent her in such wonderful ways, loving me and others. And then when the check ran out, he took her to heaven. I pray God will spend you and spend me any way he chooses, for our life is but a blank check given to Jesus. And we've said, Jesus, I'm yours. This is what Abel says to us. An abundant offering offered to God, and he was pleased by it. He testified that he was pleased. And even though he died, was murdered, his generous offering still speaks today and says all of heaven's abundant has been poured out for you. Will you now pour out your life for Jesus Christ? What will you do with Jesus today? What will you give to him? Have you given it all? Is all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Or does part of you still belong to the devil? Almighty God, I pray today for your blessing on every person who has listened to this broadcast. I pray, Lord, that each will give abundantly as you call them to give, where you call them to give, when you call them to give. But I pray, Lord, that their lives are poured out for you, that all that they have and all that they are belongs to you, Jesus. For while we were yet sinners, you loved us. Jesus, thank you. I pray your love and your blessing and your presence and your rhema word for every person who has listened to this broadcast today. I ask that you would encourage them and lift them up, that they would understand this giving and receiving with you that they would not be selfish, that they would not be hard-hearted, that they would not be critical or cynical, that, Lord, they would lay all on the altar for you and that you would meet them today with glorious revelations of your will. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress I'm Ray Greenlee. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Nationalprayerchapel.com. I invite you to listen to podcasts, subscribe. Also, there are videos there you can watch. You'll soon be able to watch this. I pray the Holy Spirit moves in your heart today. God bless you, my brother my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless Before the presence of His glory with great joy